Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's premiers are in negotiation with the federal government for a new agreement as pediatric hospitals and emergency rooms right across the country buckle under the severe strain. So far, one of the highlights and misrepresented talking points, well, we'll talk about those. Marvin Ryder joins us to discuss the latest November inflation rates, according to Stats Canada, and what is Canada's plan to mandate electric vehicles? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, the, uh, the number one issue is health care and uh, funding for health care and overcrowded hospitals. It's all tied together. And uh, the premiers, of course, met earlier and they're demanding more money. Uh, they've always been demanding more money when it comes to health care. Uh, yesterday, the prime minister met with uh, Quebec Premier Francois Legault. And uh, Premier Legault says that he is now more optimistic about reaching a health care funding deal with Ottawa after his meeting with the prime minister. Uh, Legault spoke to reporters after the meeting in Montreal. Trudeau did not. Uh, the Quebec president now, uh, the provinces and the prime minister are going to get together early in the new year, and there will be an increase in federal health transfers to the provinces. Here's what the premier said. If you remember at the beginning, we were talking about conditions. Right now, we're talking about data that are already available. So I think that uh, there's a way there. Uh, I think it's important that we uh, keep on looking for a, a meeting uh, between premiers and the prime minister. One of the uh, points of contention that's, that's been highlighted and talked about and uh, sometimes misrepresented, I think, uh, is how much money the federal government has to put in there, how much money the provinces will need. And uh, there's an interesting piece that was in the conversation.com that uh, that I picked up on, and I think it lays everything out uh, for us. It's called the Disingenuous Demands of Canada's Premiers for $28 billion in health care funding. The author is uh, Tom McIntosh, who is a professor of politics and international studies at the University of Regina. And uh, Professor McIntosh joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you, first of all, for joining us. I really appreciate the time. Happy to do it. Uh, I, we could probably list for the next half hour variations on the theme of who should be doing what here, uh, from the opposition leader, Mr. Polyev, to the premiers themselves, uh, demanding more money and simply saying that Ottawa's not pulling up their socks. But do you look at this in a more broad-based way than, than maybe they would want us to? Well, yeah, there's, you know, one of the things that struck me when the premiers issued their uh, request or demand depending on your perspective i guess um for 28 billion dollars immediately to be injected into the system is that it was based on this idea that you know the feds used to pay 50 percent now they only pay 22 percent uh of healthcare costs and it really does sort of misrepresent what's a really complicated history of federal transfers um yes there was a time when the feds paid 50% of the costs of uh, hospital and, and physician services in the country. Um, but that's also a deal that sort of ended in the 1970s. And there have been a succession of different funding formulas. So to say that there's some tradition of the feds paying half of the costs really sort of misrepresents the history, I think. And and you've got some historical perspective on this because you worked on one of those uh, variations on that theme, and that was the Romano Commission. You were a contributor to that with the, some of the research that you did. That's one aspect of this, Professor, that never gets brought into the conversation, but I think it's very germane to the discussion, isn't it? Um, yeah, and, you know, when we were doing, and the Romano Commission was 20 years ago now, when we started that, there was this 
we were having the same kind of fight and uh it was around how much is the federal government paying there had been a transfer in the 1970s of tax points from the federal government to the provincial government that was supposed to pay for health care or part of health care and it was supposed to represent half of the federal contribution and all of that and there was a big debate over you know the feds were counting it because it made their contribution look bigger and the provinces were saying well that was in the 70s and that's our revenue and that doesn't count as part of your contribution and so we're having the same fight in uh in 2022-23 that we were having when we were doing the Romano commission uh 20 years ago so why are we chasing our tails on this instead of moving forward? Is it, the intransigence here is is palpable? I mean, they, nobody seems to want to give in here. Yes, um, though I think you know, I think we will get a deal. We always wind up uh, getting a deal in the end, and I'm and, and I'm reasonably confident uh, we will. Um, part of it is that the situations have changed significantly um, right now, and there is a in. The last big, really big deal, the 2004 Accord that went to 2017, you know, it was billed by then Prime Minister Martin as the fix for a generation. Um, and what we saw with that massive investment of money, uh, essentially unconditionally, was that the system didn't change all that much. And I think even at the Romano Commission, I think we underestimated how easily the system would simply absorb that money, continue to do things the same way, and not really change in any fundamental way in the ways that not just the Romano Commission, but the Kirby Commission and all of the provincial commissions had said the system needed to change. And so I think that is now one of the sort of sticking points is okay, if we do do another massive investment into healthcare, what are we going to get? Like, it's not just keeping the system we have. It's about building the system we want to have. And we have to figure out a way in which to monitor and track real change in the system. I just want to circle back, if I could, Professor, to the point you made earlier about how they cut a deal earlier about you know, tax points, et cetera. And, and you're right, it's it's a, it's a kind of a gray area, I think, for most of us. Uh, but you mentioned in the uh, the piece in theconversation.com uh, that that revenue uh, is, is, you know, it goes to the provinces uh, and they're free to spend the money with no conditions. Uh, is there any way to track how much of that money was actually spent on health care? Because we seem to have some indications that Ontario and maybe some other provinces uh, directed that money elsewhere. Yeah, it is unfortunate that it is really hard to track a sort of federal transfer dollar into any particular provincial program. Because what you don't know is it all goes into provincial general revenues. If it... Um, and so it gets mixed with the tax revenue of provinces. And so then provinces decide we're going to spend X amount on health care. How much of that is federal transfer dollars and how much of that is provincial revenue is really difficult to track. The same is true of like equalization payments mm -hmm. uh, and the like. And, and therein lies the problem. I know in, in Ontario here, our Auditor General's report uh, indicated that a lot of the money that was supposedly allocated for health care didn't get spent on health care. Uh, 
and I guess there's a matter of accountability here that a lot of people are commenting on here. Uh, there's been a lot of money dumped into here, and, and the problem seems to be worse now than it was in, in past years. But if, if this has gone the way that it was supposed to, the money is given to the provinces, and the provinces spend it where they think it needs to be spent. Uh, but we can't track that, can we? We don't know that they've spent it in the key areas. Uh, you know, and, and we don't know, first of all, that the system's any better. And I think there's got to be some accountability here, which is really what the federal government's asking in, in return for the money, isn't it? I, I think so. And if you look at, you know, this is one of the things I think that was so interesting in the deal that Jane Philpott in 2017 negotiated, where they had individual agreements with each province over how they would spend their share of the additional cash. So they got the regular transfer plus a bit of an increase. And then there was $11.5 billion for community and mental health. And if you look at those agreements, you can see provinces listing where they said they were going to spend the money. The problem is none of those agreements had any requirement that provinces report in any way. And they don't. I don't want them to report to the feds. They should report to their own residents how they spent that money and how they met their commitments under those 2017 agreements. Now, COVID came through the system into chaos and all of that. So I'd cut them a whole lot of slack for not getting some of the things done, maybe that they said they could have gotten done. Um, but I think it's an interesting model for future negotiations. I'd like to see another set of bilateral agreements where provinces say, okay, we're going to take this extra money and here's what we're going to do with it. And then we're going to report every year or whatever on the progress we've made in those areas. I, I don't think that's an unreasonable ask of a provincial government. I think I think you're bang on here. It's the the pattern with this government this, uh, over the last five or six years uh, seems to be to to you know do the provinces one at a time here. I, I don't know if we're ever going to get a, a big umbrella that said, okay, here's our health care program. I, not unlike the child care program that they finally got everybody outside with. Yes, there is a national child care program, but there's an Ontario version of it, a Quebec version of it, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, et cetera, et cetera. Is that what we're going to see with health care now? Well, it is what we have with healthcare because yeah. healthcare is constitutionally a provincial responsibility. And so what the child care agreements do, and I think it is a model, I think you're right, is it gets everybody using the model they have and working towards something that's going to look more, more and more similar across the country towards that $10 a day daycare, right? That's the, the the ultimate goal. But it meets the provinces where they are in the way they have their own childcare arrangements and goes from there towards some common goals. And I think that's how, that's not a bad model for healthcare too. Uh Vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, Premier Legault's comments that he's more confident there's going to be a prime minister uh, premier's meeting about this. I, I, does that sound like a feasible idea sometime in January, perhaps? Um, yeah, I think it, I think at this point the the feds are um, are are getting ready. I think you know they they're they're preparing themselves. Um, I think in January or early February we're likely to see a first minister's meeting. Uh, on this, but they don't want to go into that meeting um, 
until they're reasonably sure that they have a that that there'll be some level of success coming out of it. They don't want to. The last thing they want is a failed first ministers meeting, uh, especially on health care. Uh, one of our Ottawa sources told us on the program last week that look at you know we're expressing our frustration as Canadians are, and saying there's a lot more work being done behind closed doors. He says don't listen to the political leaders. That's the bombast, uh, but they are working towards a deal here. Is, is that your experience that the, most of the work gets done away from the microphones and the and the cameras? Yes, and um, you know the the political actors are brought in. Um, uh, to put the icing on the cake, uh, not to negotiate the fine points of the deals. Um, and I think that's exactly what's been going on, is that the officials at the deputy and minister and below level are in constant conversation over um, what a new deal would look like. Well, we can only hope that's the case. Uh, if you want to get some perspective on this, uh, please read the, uh, the conversation.com. Uh, the piece, uh, I think, really puts it into uh, perspective here as to what needs to be done and, and some historical perspective on this as well. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation. Thank you very much. Take care. Professor Tom McIntosh from the University of Regina. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today, of course, uh, the latest inflation numbers come our way, and uh, they were released just a few minutes ago. Don Kelly has some details for us. Reports slower price growth for gasoline and furniture was offset by rapidly rising shelter costs and stubbornly high grocery prices. Those grocery prices rose 11.4% in November. Mortgage interest costs were 14.5% higher. Rent was up 5.9%. Statistics Canada says there's upward pressure on rent prices as more Canadians are priced out of home ownership because of high interest rates. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Well, it's uh, not the best news we could have heard uh, to decipher some of these things and how this is going to impact us. Pleased to welcome back to the program, Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you, Bill. Glad to be with you. I, I six point nine to six point eight percent. I I don't know if we call this a victory or not. I, I guess we're moving in the right direction, but uh, it's it's in glacial speed, isn't it? Yeah, that's all we can say here, Bill. Is that I, I am frankly disappointed. I was hoping the number would be more like six and a half percent or a little less than six percent. Um, and, and so yes, it's moving at glacial speed. Yes, it's moving in the right direction. But boy, if our goal is to get it to two to three percent. We still have a long ways to go. I should point out when they say that your know, food prices are up 11.4%, that didn't happen all in the month of November. That just compares one November to the November a year ago. So during the year, we've seen this increase of 11%. Again, hard to take just before Christmas when it's a feasting time, when we're all planning to have family over and, and enjoy some wonderful food and company. It, it hurts the pocketbook for sure. The only thing I can say is I do know that the bank of Canada's interest rate increases are going to happen over the long run. They should have the right effect, but boy, it's happening very slowly. Well, because we had some, if we could use that old economic term, we had some green shoots here. There seem to be some indications that, as you say, gasoline prices actually fell, but we're told they're probably not going to stay that low. But I mean, you know, and they've leveled off a little bit now over the last uh, four or five days, but there seemed to be some indications that maybe things were, were going well, but, uh, 
as this, yeah, as you mentioned, it's holiday time, and a lot of us are buying more than we usually would, maybe, and buying different things these days. And a lot of us are shocked at the price of those things now. In other words, grocery stores, especially, that's probably the place where we take the biggest hit, isn't it? Yeah, I would say that's where we take the biggest hit. It's also the most noticeable because we remember, boy, I remember what a price of a loaf of bread was, or a bag of milk was, or a, a pound of cheese, whatever it happens to be. And oh my gosh, look how much it's gone up! Or or steak even, or a turkey compared to a year ago. Now, Bill, maybe I should just take a moment and explain what causes inflation. We always think of it as prices going up, and oh, that must be that the input costs have gone higher. But the major source of this inflation that we're seeing is a case of supply and demand. You and I locked down during the pandemic. We weren't buying as much. We were trapped in our homes. And so businesses reduced their production. They didn't see the point in producing goods just to put them in inventory, no guarantee of sales. So they laid off some workers and, and rolled back on their factories. And then in 2021, as we started to emerge from the recession, the question was, well, would consumers start spending again? Would they go back to their old habits? Uh, it wasn't you, but a different radio host once asked me that question and suggested it might take 10 years, 10 years, to recover from the shock of COVID. Instead, it took more like 10 weeks, but that fast time caught businesses by surprise. They just couldn't produce goods fast enough to match demand. Now, some people called that a supply chain problem, but basically demand outstrips supply. And whenever that happens, prices go up. Now, some of the first things you saw in 2021 were things like lumber. Having been trapped inside, we looked around the house and said, well, we probably should finish that basement or we need to put up a new fence or we need a new deck. And we all rushed out to buy lumber, but it takes quite a while to produce lumber. <clears throat> From the time you cut down a tree, turn it into boards, dry it so that you can use it, it takes quite a little while. So in 2021, the very first bellwether of high inflation was lumber prices that just got to be astronomical for a two by four or a two by six as it went. Now in 2022, actually lumber prices have fallen or a second example of this would be used cars. You'll remember in 2021, there was a problem getting computer chips to new car makers, but people needed to buy a new car or at least a replacement vehicle around the house. If they couldn't buy a new one, they wanted to buy used cars. Well, suddenly there wasn't enough used cars going around. We saw prices shoot up in 2021. They've actually come down in 2022. And this is what happens when we can get the supply and the demand matched. This is actually the plan of, of our governor of the Bank of Canada. By putting the cost of borrowing up, maybe people would demand a little bit less, and that would allow us to get the two things sorted out. It is beginning to happen, but very slowly. But if you do look around, you will see some green shoots where we've passed the peak, and now prices are coming back to more reasonable levels. And that's something, as, as you say, the circle of economic life, I suppose. Uh, but as you've reminded us, Marvin, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada has been pretty aggressive in, in raising rates to try to combat this. Uh, but the time frame we've always been talking about here is that's 12 to 18 months before we really see uh, an impact on what's happening here. So where are these numbers coming from? Or is that why we're, we seem to be stagnating for the last couple of months? Well, I think what we're beginning to see now in November and December and in October were the first cut, first interest rate increases that we saw in February and March and April. They finally have been there long enough to have their impact. Clearly, the first interest rate increases were relatively small relative to what the prime was at that time. And therefore, I guess this is why we're seeing relatively small changes at this point. 
having said that, the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, has also signaled that he doesn't want to overdo it. He doesn't want to, to have a deep freeze hit our economy. He just wants to slow it down a little bit. So it's like tapping the brake on the car when you're driving in winter. You don't want to slam on it because then you'll start to skid and slide out of control. So he's tapping the brake. It seems like the taps have begun to work. Unfortunately, it was probably going to take six more months before we start to see numbers, maybe even just in the 3% range. So I'm afraid this high inflation is going to be with us for some more months for sure. All right. Uh, you know, the old adage that sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Yes. Uh, we're starting to see these interest rate hikes have, have an impact on, on some of the other parts of our lives as well, uh, including which we're told slowdowns in some production manufacturing situations, uh, obviously with houses. I mean, you know, there's a story the other day, I'm sure you saw too, uh, that there are some people that are actually on the brink of and some who probably already have started to fault on mortgages and are trying to renegotiate. So uh, there's there's good news and bad news here about the impact that uh, the, these high rates, interest rates, that is, are having anyway. Right. So if I can offer, again, a green shoot in all of this, the banks clearly uh, foresaw this. You'll remember that for the last several years, uh, during, the, during the worst of COVID, we had these stress tests. Even though the mortgage rates were tremendously low, they weren't testing whether you could afford the mortgage at that point. They were testing at a much higher level to make sure you could afford it at that point. And so the good news is that even though people aren't happy about seeing more of their payment going towards interest, they're able to carry it. But the other thing that banks have been doing is the banks don't want your house. They don't want to foreclose. They don't want to put you into bankruptcy. So they themselves are trying to find ways to renegotiate, to give you some breathing room. And my advice to anyone listening to us, if you have a mortgage and if you are having some problems making ends meet, getting from one paycheck to the next. Please call your banker. Please have a discussion with your banker. You would be amazed at the tools that they have to play around a bit with your mortgage, to help you out, to avoid the worst case scenario. Unfortunately, people try so hard to solve all these problems on their own and then think the bank is the last person they should approach. By that point, the bank's hands are quite constrained. Go to them early. Tell them your problem. Tell them what you've got coming in, what's got to go out, and then let them work some magic on this. Now, for most people, that means playing with the amortization rate. We can bring your cost down by maybe extending the mortgage for a year or two. But that's for now. And if interest rates come down, you'll be able to reverse this in two or three years on the other side of it. Everyone needs to do what they have to do to get through this difficult time. Another thing, I was just looking at the uh, the coverage of this on the Globe and Mail about uh, the, the, the rate that was announced today. Uh, and they mentioned cell phone bills. Uh, they, they say they've actually decreased. Now, I have not noticed that. But then I had to I read the fine print here, and that's year to year. It's not from November to December. Have you noticed that? Is, is there a trend developing here? Uh, Bill, it's so hard for me to answer that question. I'm like you. I have a flat rate I pay per month, which I negotiated a couple of years ago, and, and it hasn't changed. So in my mind, my, my cell phone bill has not come down. But I think what we've seen is in the cell phone business, or for that matter, even things like streaming services, what have you, there are more options. And if you're saying, I, I don't like the price I'm paying for the cell phone, well, maybe you don't need all the bells and whistles that come with plan A. Why don't you switch to plan B or C? Yes, you get a reduced service, but if you're not using those services, it doesn't really cost you anything. And that's one of the things that we've seen come out. Netflix, for instance, I know that's not a cell phone, but Netflix, for instance, has come out with a version of Netflix that if you're prepared to watch, I think it's four minutes of commercial an hour, 
you cut your Netflix rate in half. So if, again, if you're having problems paying some of these bills, take a look at the other options out there. Now, in fairness, the, the cell phone companies aren't going to call you and say, hey, I can cut your bill in half. Are you interested in that? But if you take the initiative and, and go to their website or call them on the phone, have a chat with a service representative, you might find a more affordable plan for you and your needs. So there is some relief here. Uh, just if you could, Marvin, crystal ball for just a couple of seconds here. Uh, because like I say, 6.9 to 6.8 is, is is not what we were looking for here. Uh, no. We're spending more money probably than we should at Christmas time. We always do. Uh, what's that going to do to the numbers when when we look at January? Are we just going to put a break, a halt to this and just say, okay, enough is enough? Uh, because I, I figure the, the personal debt uh, that we all have right now, which is also a factor, I suppose, in, in these numbers that we saw today, is not going to get any smaller over the next six to eight weeks. No. So this always happens uh, starting about the 10th day of January and going on for a month and a half. Those Christmas card or Christmas card, Christmas bills come in and we've all got to pay them. And the minute we start to pay them, we say, OK, folks, we got to tighten the belts. We we overspent here at Christmas time. And so, yeah, we typically do see a decline in people spending fresh money. But here's the odd thing, Bill. The number one Christmas gift at this Christmas season is gift cards. So we're giving retailers cash today, but oddly, those retailers can't spend the cash we're giving them. Instead, they give us a piece of plastic that can be used. And most of those gift cards get redeemed in January and February. So for retail stores, this may not be as big of a hit as you might think. It won't be new money flowing, but that cash they'll finally be able to claim they keep it in a separate pot because they can't use it until the gift card is used. So we may see, especially with some good January and February sales, we may see retail not suffer the way it has in the past because this is our number one gift. We don't give you stuff anymore. We give you a card. Uh, it's, it's the new normal, I suppose, these days. Uh, Marvin, as always, thank you so much for uh, taking some time with us today and trying to explain some of these numbers. Uh, all the best of the holiday season to you, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Best wishes to everybody. To you too. Marvin Ryder from the Degree School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, federal government has uh, moved to mandate electric vehicle sales starting in uh, 2025. That's not that far into the future. And there are some implications to that as well. Uh, One-fifth of all passenger cars, SUVs, and trucks sold in Canada in 2026 will need to run on electricity under new regulations. Uh, that hasn't been passed yet, but it's going to be presented by uh, Environment Minister St- Stefan Gibault probably today, later on today when they sit. So what's the reaction from the industry on this? I want to bring Brian Kingston into the conversation. Brian, of course, is the uh, president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about this. I, got, I saw the uh, press release you've made about this. And uh, in principle, I, I, as you mentioned, you agree with what the government's doing. Uh, but there's a yeah, but in this. Uh, I, basically, uh, you know, we need charging stations. And, and that's not for you to build. That's for the federal government to fund. And we seem to be lagging behind there. Well, exactly. I mean, we, we support the direction in terms of electrifying the vehicle fleet. And you're seeing that with all of the investments that auto companies are making into Canada and globally to bring more and more EVs to market. What the concern is with today's announcement is now the federal government is going to regulate sales. So they're going to regulate what vehicles Canadians can and cannot buy. And the challenge there is that we don't have the infrastructure in place and we don't have significant enough incentives 
to help every Canadian make that switch. And, and that will be the barrier to widespread adoption. If you can't install a charger at home, if you can't charge near your home on the street, an EV won't be feasible for you. But now the federal government's introducing penalties and regulations that will force that. But as you say, if they haven't put the foundation in there, what's that going to work? I mean, I, I, I see more and more EVs on the road, and you and I have talked about this in the last couple of weeks, and, and that's that's good. That's that, that's happening. Uh, but supply and demand, can the industry actually keep up with this? Uh, if everybody all of a sudden wants, uh, says, okay, I have to comply, I'm going to get an EV by 2026, uh, in other words, about two years from now, we're going to be looking, or three years from now, we're going to be looking at this stuff. Uh, there's affordability, which is going to be one factor. But the other thing, too, is are we going to be up to speed on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is uh, one of the uh, the, the interesting um, elements from the announcement that the federal government made uh, this morning. They, they talk about vehicle supply and regulations to enhance supply. The reality is automakers are moving extremely rapidly to ramp up production. $1.2 trillion has been invested into this transformation. And we're on track to have tens of millions of EVs being built by 2030. But that said, this is a transformation and a transformation does take time. There's demands on critical mineral needs. Um, there's shortages on lithium. There are issues that need to be resolved over the coming years to allow that supply to ramp up. So the federal government's taking an approach where they believe that they can regulate away global supply chain challenges. That's just simply not realistic. Um, there needs to be time given to allow this transformation to occur. And while that happens, build those supports, build that infrastructure, build out your electric grid capacity and make sure that every Canadian will be in a position to switch to an electric. Well, especially talk about the raw materials. Uh, you know, I, I know the government likes to get behind big announcements and, and Premier Ford and, and some of the federal ministers have talked about, you know, extracting the minerals from the ring of fire up in northern Ontario. That's not going to happen by 2025. So that source is, is not going to be there. I mean, it was great to announce that, uh, but they've been trying to do that for the last 20 years and they haven't had a whole lot of success negotiating deals. I, I can't see that they're going to put a rush on it and do it in the next 20 months. Well, exactly. And, and I can assure you that federal government sales regulations also won't uh, won't make a difference in terms of your ability to um, uh, ramp up critical mineral supply. I mean, this is going to be a key issue as the industry transitions. Can we as as not just as Canada, but globally, can we build the mining capacity, the processing capacity at the pace required to feed into the demand for electric vehicle batteries? And we've got this great opportunity in Canada to do so, but we know that there are continued challenges with the regulatory approval process for a new mine, for example, 10 to 15 years uh, from, from um, the, the beginning of the process to actually having an operational mine. So we need to align the government's objectives and their ambitions on zero emission vehicle sales but the realities of building a new global vehicle supply chain the current gas-powered vehicle supply chain that we have which is highly efficient by the way um you know this this has been developed over decades and decades to get it to where it's at today uh, so you can't just flip a switch and expect that suddenly everything's going to be available overnight well, and, and especially when you look at these numbers here, you know, that you've, you've talked, you know, by 2030, they want the mandate to be at 60% of all sales. And, and by 2035, every passenger vehicle sold in Canada will need to be electric. Uh, those are, are laudable goals. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, that's where they want us to be. Uh, but I, I, what are we at now? Five or 6% sales right now with EVs? I mean, we got a long way to go and not a lot, not a lot of time to get there. 
Well, that's it. I mean, there's a long and steep climb to get to some of these targets. And we've seen good year-over-year increases in adoption and increasing interest from consumers. But for this to work for all Canadians, that's where you need the infrastructure built. And that's where you have to have those supports. And what the regulation that they've announced today does is, is put in place penalties if those targets aren't met. So I'll give you a simple example. It's 2030. We're supposed to be at the 60% target. Someone can goes to purchase a new vehicle, but they're not able to install charging at their home. Or let's say they live in an apartment building and there's no charging in their building. They won't be able to purchase anything but a gas-powered vehicle to meet all of their transportation needs. Under the government's proposed regulation, there will be a $20,000 penalty attached to that purchase if you purchase a gas-powered vehicle and it's outside of the proposed sales regulation. So this is the problem and this is why we continue to urge government to do more, to build the infrastructure, to help Canadians with those purchases so that we don't end up in a situation like that where Canadians are ultimately being regulated to purchase vehicles that they can't afford or charge. Well, and I know I'm not going to ask you to answer for the government, but I mean, where's the program to announce that that money is going to be allocated and then they're going to do that? Because you're talking about practical examples. I mean, you know, in, in my neighborhood, uh, there, there's a shell station around the corner here that I think has three stations, three charging stations there. Uh, I don't know of any place else, in, at least in the, around here, and we got a lot of apartments, townhouses, things like that, that may or may not have charging stations. So, you know, what, what's that going to do to that consumer that wants to be compliant? But, you know, if, what's the sense of buying a vehicle if you can't drive it? Well, that's just it. And, and just to give you an example of how slow this charging infrastructure rollout is right now, the federal government's announced funding for 84,500 chargers. Right now, there are 2,500 chargers that are operational across the country. Those are government-funded chargers. That is a far, far cry from the committed to 84,500. And what's missing from the proposed regulation here today is, is a crosswalk, a tie-in. You can't regulate Canadians to buy these vehicles if you're not going to ensure and, and guarantee them that the charging infrastructure will be there. And just to give you an example of, of what other jurisdictions are doing, the federal government loves to compare itself to California, where they do have a sales mandate. California just announced another $2.9 billion in their clean transportation plan for chargers. Um, these are massive, massive amounts of money, and they're on track to have 250,000 chargers by just 2025. So that's the type of ambition you need. That's the type of rollout that we need. And instead, we have this, this very uncoordinated federal plan, which is ultimately going to penalize Canadians. Just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, more to come on this, I, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. Brian, thanks for jumping in with us today. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. Great to chat. Take care. Brian Kingston from the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.